Now, if at some point you uh, end up going under the surgeon's knife, before you uh, do the countdown as the anaesthetist, so, you know, it says kind of 10, 9, see if you can get to 1, and so on, it's good to know, isn't it, the credentials of your surgeon. You want to be assured that your surgeon and the, and the staff around the surgeon are qualified, are competent. See, before we place our, ha- our lives in the hands of others, we need to be assured, don't we, that they are competent for the task. Likewise, when you take a car to a mechanic, uh, you want to know that they kind of understand the car in question, don't you? You don't want the mechanic kind of, ooh, sort of scratching his head, looking at your car, sort of going, ooh, I'm not sure, I might try this, I'm not, ooh, you know, and so on. You want assurances that they are competent. After all, you'll be driving away in that car, and therefore you're literally placing your life in the hands of that mechanic. Before we place our lives in the hands of others, we need to be assured that they are competent for the task. Now, let's think about this letter now. Uh, Paul uh, is writing to this church in Corinth, uh, a church that he'd established, a church that he loved deeply. We've seen that throughout the letter, haven't we? He had written to them uh, a severe letter. You can read about that in chapter 2, verse 4, a letter he wrote with tears. uh, Because they were abandoning him as an apostle of God and his teaching, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, wonderfully, it seems, that church in Corinth had responded well to that severe letter. But Paul now, here in 2 Corinthians, still is having to defend himself and his ministry. The church were doubting Paul. It was absurd, really. But the church were needing assurances, if you like, that Paul was competent for the task of an apostle as a preacher of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul knew, as every preacher does, preachers can never perfectly embody the message that we preach. We are not perfect. But we must be subject to the message that we preach, long for it, pursue it and pray for it to be uh, true in our lives. The aim of every preacher is that we preach the gospel of Christ with that passionate sincerity that we've seen of Paul. If you flip back just one verse to the end of chapter 2, you'll see that here, unlike so many that other teachers in Corinth who peddle the word of God for profit, on the contrary, he speaks of himself here. Four qualifications of that sincere, passionate ministry of Paul. Uh, if you like, his qualifications, his competency. Uh, he speaks in Christ, he speaks before God, with sincerity as those sent from God. Now, but I guess what what is happening is Paul speaks those words in chapter 2, verse 17. He may have thought, well, it might sound a bit like boasting. He could appear at that point to, to, to be just like all the other teachers who have got infiltrated the church in Corinth, who seem so impressive, and who were very careful to be seen as impressive as well. Which is why I think Paul, in the beginning of our passage, uses these two questions at the beginning of chapter 3. And look at verse 1 there. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? He says. Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you and from you? Now, let's think about those letters for a moment. Letters of recommendation. Very, very usual practice in these times. People couldn't check out the credentials of a doctor 
or a mechanic, just like go, going online, that you, just, you couldn't do that. No. And the same goes for a preacher who walks into a place. Letters of recommendation, we see, they were the way that people could be assured that a person was competent for the task. Thousands upon thousands of letters of recommendation uh, exist still today from those times. In archaeological dig, you find letters of recommendation. And Paul readily used such letters. And he even sort of snuck in little recommendations within some of the letters that we have in the Bible. So if you look at Romans 16, for example, verse 1, he there commends to you, uh, to the Roman church, uh, church in Rome, the si- our sister Phoebe, who was a deacon. The whole letter of Philemon, if you ever know that in the New Testament, is in its essence a letter of recommendation. 1 Corinthians 16, for example, Paul there recommends Timothy to the church in Corinth. And likewise, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Titus is recommended. This is very normal practice, if you like. But the problem with letters of recommendation, if you, much like our CVs of today, letters could be exaggerated. They could become slightly misleading, if you like. Now, I, I know some of you are in HR, you're very proficient in all this. You, know. you guys, you'll check out. If someone says they've got 48 A-levels you know, and 52 degrees, you'll be like, checking on the internet, won't you, finding out that that would be normal practice as someone applies for a job. You check credentials. But anything stated on a letter of recommendation was difficult to check. And Paul suggests that that might be a little bit of an issue in Corinth. Look at the end of verse 1. Or do we need, as he says, it's quite a little term, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you. From you. The, the some people that he's referring to there are probably the some people, the people he's referring to back in chapter 2, verse 17. Those who peddle God's word. Now Paul is hinting there that the there might be some dishonesty going on here. Some defrauding going on of the people of Corinth. I don't know if you saw last week, one of of our favourite films was on TV, Catch Me If You Can, did you see that? Uh, With Tom Hanks and Leonardo DiCaprio. It's a a great story. It tells a story, a true story of Frank Abagnale. Now, this was a man who posed as a Pan Am airline pilot. And uh, from a very, very young age, I think he was about 17 when he started this. And later on in life, he he kind of posed as a doctor uh, and then a lawyer. Uh, But he chose those professions because there was an air of trustworthiness about those professions in the 60s when he did it. And it allowed him to travel the whole way around. He never flew a plane. He literally just got onto a Pan Am flight, uh, dressed as a, a Pan Am pilot and said, I need a kind of spare seat because I'm about to do a flight over here. And he travelled the whole way around America simply so he could cash checks which he fraudulently kind of created. And he earned himself millions upon millions of pounds. Point is, no one checked his credentials properly. He falsified all his letters of qualification. And it seems the church in Corinth were being defrauded by an appearance of trustworthiness. Paul is suggesting to the church, you need to check the credentials of these teachers. But at the same time, likewise, what we see here is that Paul is defending himself as well. His own ministry, his competence. 
And in so doing, what, the brilliant thing about this little passage is he's helping us. We can see, uh, we should be able to discern from this what we should be looking for too. What is authentic gospel ministry? What should a good church, what should a good church leader look like? What should someone who ministers the gospel look like? As in all of us. Let's look at Paul, if you like, for some answers. And you need to think about it for a moment, because it is, it is really absurd, isn't it? That Paul, the founder of this church in Corinth, would be asked for these letters of recommendation. And so he uses this situation to present his credentials. But the great thing is that no letter can be found, no physical letter can be found. Rather, Paul's credentials, as he says, will say that they're written by Christ, whom he proclaimed. And the letters are, if you like, in the hearts and the lives of the people of the church in Corinth. That takes us to our first point. You'll see it on your sheets there. Paul's ministry is evidenced by the hearts and the lives transformed by the Spirit. And Paul is showing us here, really helpfully, uh, if you like, the true credentials of gospel ministry and the true Christian faith. And therefore, if you sit here today, and I, I hope you've been welcomed, if you, if you sit here today and you're not a Christian, or you're unsure if you're a Christian, then please listen. Listen very, very carefully, because Paul is showing us here today what a true Christian really is. Look at verse 2 with me, if you can. You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. Paul is brilliant here. He's kind of like a boxer in a ring. He's kind of taking these opponents off guard. Uh, he's showing the church in Corinth that they themselves are Paul, Paul's letter of recommendation. And everyone could see that. Everyone could read that as they looked at them and their hearts and their lives. These teachers who are leading the church astray in Corinth, they, they may have been so impressive. They may have been gaining these big crowds, but their work and their evidence of their work was all external. And by contrast, Paul had preached a simple gospel, the good news that Jesus had come, that he lived and he died and he'd been raised. And by God's Spirit, it had worked in people's lives, but it was an internal work. It was a powerful transforming work that occurred and begun in their hearts. A spiritual heart work that then of course seeped out into their lives. It was apparent for all to see. This is the experience of every Christian. We remain the same people in many, many ways. But God has wonderfully worked through his word and the spirit has worked through that word to transform us from the inside we become radically new people it is so radically new that paul in chapter five will call the christians in the church there a new creation see paul is showing the church that his ministry his credentials are very very little about him look at with, with me at verse three you show that you are a letter from christ the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. Now Paul is very quick here to point out 
that he hasn't radically changed the hearts and the lives of the church in Corinth. They are a letter from Christ as they responded to the gospel of Christ, empowered by the spirit of the living God who has worked in each of them. But what a work. What an extraordinary work. And Paul is writing stuff here that would have sent off all sorts of alarm bells in the church in Corinth as they had listened to these, these words. And I, I wonder if you, alarm bells have been triggering here. We've had a few clues because Ash has brilliantly led the service and kind of pointed us there already. Uh, but Paul is describing here that it's something that was so, if you like, long-awaited. Promised centuries before through the prophets. In verse 3, he speaks about his ministry not being written on tablets of stone, of course, referring to the law of God that was given to Moses. That old covenant between God and his people that was established and the law was given by God so that people would know how to honour him in that relationship, in that covenant relationship. The law was good, but it was external. It was written on tablets of stone. But God made promises through the prophets we've heard in Jeremiah. We're going to turn there in a moment. Uh, he promised that the day was coming when his law would be written in the hearts of his people. We're going to have a look at, briefly at that. If you turn back to page 794 with me. Page 794. We're back in Jeremiah. Ash has read these verses already. We'll just have a look, little glance at them. Page 794, Jeremiah 31. Uh, verses 33 and 34. I'll, I'll read those to you now. This is speaking of the old covenant established. Sorry, <clears throat> this is speaking of the new covenant, sorry. This is the covenant that I will make with my people, with the people of Israel, after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. God makes these wonderful promises that will be established in the new covenant. Promises of, we see a new heart, that God's law would not now be written in their hearts, not on, not on, not on these eternal, uh, sorry, external tablets of stone. So a new heart, a new relationship would be there. A closeness not known before. I will be their God. They will be my people. A new understanding or a new knowledge as well. They will all know me. In a new covenant, we don't come as a nation, as a state. We, it doesn't matter whether we're British. We come one by one. It doesn't matter whether you're born into a Christian family. We come one by one before God. But it leads to, lastly, a true forgiveness. Look at it. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. In the old covenant, the blood of animals symbolically covered the sin of people. Uh, but as Jesus, that once for all sacrifice, stretched out his arms on the cross, he established in his sacrifice a new covenant. A new relationship was open between us and God. And that brings true forgiveness, as we see here. Now these are the new covenant blessings that have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is the ministry that, that Paul has been proclaiming. This is the gospel that he's been proclaiming. He proclaimed it through the word and the Spirit had worked through that word 
in the hearts and the lives of the people in Corinth. And they've been transformed from the inside. That is why he says these lives in the Corinthian church were his letter of recommendation. On January the 2nd in 1968, uh, a dentist named Philip Blayberg became the first man in history to hold his own heart in his hand. <coughs> he was the first surviving adult heart transplant patient. And he stood uh, with the surgeon in the hospital in Cape Town where the surgery had taken place and he was handed his old heart in a glass jar. Sorry about this, Linda. Um, Linda's super queasy, but I'm just going to go with this. And he looked at it, and uh, he was dentist. He asked the, uh, the surgeon a few kind of medical questions. But he finished uh, with this as he handed back his old heart to the surgeon. He said, this is my old heart that has caused me so much trouble. And he turned his back and walked out of that hospital saying goodbye to his old heart forever. Philip Blayberg was still the same 59-year-old dentist, but crucially, he had a new heart. Christians, you see, we look the same, but we have new hearts. The Word of God that Paul proclaimed and that we proclaim works in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so therefore, Christians can testify to this transforming work from the inside. The problem with the Old Covenant, you see, was that it was a written law. It had no power with it to, to, for us to obey it. In the New Covenant, established by Christ, we now have the Spirit of God working in us and through us. It's an internal work of God in us so that we might long to obey. As a result, Christians will testify that we do long to do the right thing before God to honour his saving, his transforming work in our lives. William Tyndale, the great reformer, 16th century reformer, uh, once described this, saying that of Christians, I've translated the because it was old English and I didn't understand a word of it, but it's, it's roughly, he said, Christians lust to do the law. They lusted to do the law. And if you sit here today as a Christian, you will know that transforming work of the Word and Spirit in your life and you will long, you will long to honour and obey God's Word because you have a new heart. The law is written on your heart and the Spirit is there in your heart to help you obey that law. And if you sit here today and you just look at God's word and you kind of think, oh, that's just a heap of inconvenient rules that you will dismiss at your will whenever you choose. Can I dare to suggest to you, I'm not sure that you have known the Spirit of God working in your life, transforming your heart. I guess my prayer is that that will be true for you today as you begin to see the joys and the blessings of relationship with Christ. See, Paul's ministry is evidenced by hearts and lives that have been transformed by the Spirit of God as promised so long before. The people of Corinth had trusted Jesus. Their lives had been transformed. They had a new heart, a new relationship with God, a new understanding of his kindness and that true, wonderful, liberating sense of forgiveness in their lives. 
All Paul had done is simply proclaim the gospel of Christ, exactly what a competent minister of the gospel should do, just leaving the rest to God. And that's where Paul kind of turns now in our second point. Let's just read verses 4 and 5 before we turn to that second point. Verse 4, such confidence we have through Christ before God, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. Sorry, we're back in 2 Corinthians now, chapter 3, page 1160. So we've seen Paul's uh, ministry was evidenced by hearts and lives transformed by the Spirit. Secondly, Paul's ministry is evidenced by the confidence he has at, from God and the competence he has from God. Now, I think we might find this particularly difficult. But I also pray that we find it liberating because we live in a world which is obsessed with our own self-importance. And Paul is quite the opposite, as we see in these couple of verses, because Paul's confidence is founded in his inadequacy, as he sees it. He, he speaks of competence, but he sees himself as the incompetent one. It's a principle that flows throughout the Bible, just so we don't think this is isolated here. And Moses, of course, was the one with the speech defect, but God used him to speak. It's interesting that, isn't it? Gideon was the one with the defective army, had nothing really, and yet he was used to win an unwinnable war. Isaiah was insufficient in so many ways, but he was utilised by God, used by God. And Jeremiah said in the beginning of Jeremiah chapter 1, Alas, sovereign Lord, I do not know how to speak. I am too young, and yet God used him so wonderfully. Oh, the list could go on and on and on and on and on. Every time throughout salvation history, throughout the Bible, God takes the insufficient, the defective, the unqualified, the incompetent, and he uses them again and again and again to display his sufficiency and his competence in all things. What have you, did you get it? Human insufficiency is the ground, you see, for God's sufficiency. God does choose throughout the t all time. He, he chooses people who, who look like nobody's really in, in many ways. But you see, then he can use that opportunity to display his great strength in and through them. Oh, God does use very able people, uh, you know, the somebodies, if you like, but only when they put aside their own strength. And trusting God fully. I don't know if you've seen that Martin Luther, another great reformer, um, yesterday, 18th of February in, in 1546, died. His last statement was this. I mean, this is a great man, a great thinker, a great writer, a great, you know, transformed the church. He said, his last words were this, we are beggars. That is true. Martin Luther was a great somebody. But he knew that he was nothing before God, and then he gave, therefore he gave himself to God alongside all his weakness. And let God use him. And God, let God use him. I think the great struggle for all of us, in many ways so competent as we sit here, the great struggle for all of us as we minister to the gospel, the gospel to those around us, our friends, our colleagues, our family members, and so on, it, the great struggle is, to, is that we need to know that we are so terribly weak. And therefore, we need to try and give up 
trying to do everything in our own strength. When we get to that point, recognising our insufficiency, then God wonderfully can use us and show his all-sufficient power. Now Paul's confidence in his ministry, uh, in verse 4, comes through the work of Christ. It isn't rooted in him or any of his co-workers or any of his gifts or any of his strengths. No, it's rooted in Christ and his strength. His confidence is rooted in God's sufficiency over all things. And likewise in verse 5, if you have a look at that, as Paul speaks about competence, look what it says. Now, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. Paul explains that if he is seen as competent in ministry, it is not from him. He's simply been given the privilege to proclaim Jesus Christ, that message of the new covenant, which is that ministry of transformation empowered by the Spirit. And that's how Paul concludes. We're moving quite quickly now through. He shows the church in Corinth that he's nothing more than a minister of this new covenant. Look at me at verse 6 if we can as we finish off. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter but of the Spirit, for the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. We saw in Jeremiah 31, didn't we, that the new covenant brought transformation. As we trust in Jesus Christ, we can be wonderfully transformed from the inside. It's a hard work by the power of the Spirit. And we can know, therefore, the forgiveness of sin. The Old Covenant always was established and began with like, this sea of animal blood. But it could not take away sin. It, was, it wasn't a sufficient sacrifice in that way. It didn't transform people. The New Covenant begins with the blood of one. One who is completely sufficient. The perfect sacrifice that died once, his name was Jesus, never to be repeated, and who died for all who would trust in him. A sufficient sacrifice that offers complete transformation. I wonder, do you know that in your life? It isn't something you earn. It isn't something you are born into. It isn't attained by virtue of you being here or being British. It is a work of God in your heart. How? By the Spirit of God, as we see in verse 6. And once again, Paul is alluding to, yes, Jeremiah 31, but also to another passage, I think, also Ezekiel 36. Make a note of that if you want. I'll read a couple of verses to you. Ezekiel 36 verse 26 and 27. It says this, is again a promise of the new covenant blessings. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Paul again is alluding to here uh, these covenant promises because he is showing the Corinthian church that God is looking not for gifted people or people who think they're absolutely wonderful, self-sufficient people. God is looking for inadequate people, if you like, 
who give their weakness to him, opening themselves up to this transforming work of the Spirit in their lives. That was true of Paul as a minister, as a preacher of the gospel. But it's also true of all of us if we're Christians here today. As we trust in Jesus, we receive a new heart that longs to honour him, obeying his word. And we receive his spirit to help us and guide us to obey his word. But often we can find ourselves hiding, can't we? Do you do that? Hiding behind your strengths? Trying to do things just your way, rather than allowing God to work in and through you? Or maybe just hiding behind your weaknesses, saying to God, you know, I can't possibly enter into that kind of conversation with that person. I'm too shy. I don't have the words to say. Look at Paul. Look at Moses. Look at Gideon. Look at Jeremiah. Look at Ezekiel. The list could go on and on and on. God takes what is weak in the eyes of the world to display his strength, which means what? It means he can use you and he can use me. I'll finish with a, a story I was reminded of this week as I was preparing this talk. I heard this story many, many years ago, uh, as a child actually. In 1955, uh, John Stott, who many of you all know, is a great uh, uh, preacher and writer. He was the vicar of all souls up in Oxford Circus. He invited the great evangelist Billy Graham to England uh, to preach for a number of weeks. And on that visit, Billy Graham uh, was to speak at Cambridge University uh, for the kick you there, many of you all know that, uh, which is the student group there. He was to come and preach the gospel of Christ as he had done many times around the world. Billy Graham was met at the university by a number of the professors, including one C.S. Lewis, who had just moved there from Oxford. Billy Graham would testify that he was absolutely terrified by this. A simple, he would always uh, view himself as quite a simple preacher, a simple man who just loved Jesus and liked to preach the gospel. That is, as he prepared his talks for that week of mission, as it was, uh, in Cambridge, he felt utterly, utterly insufficient. He just viewed himself as a, a southern guy, a southern Baptist guy who liked to preach about Jesus. He didn't have lots of degrees at all. But he did his best to prepare some talks which he thought would suit the students and the academics gathered. He preached for three nights at the University Church, that very famous church in the centre of the campus there. Uh, and the place was packed, but with little or no effect. The talks were received very, very badly. On the morning before his fourth turkey talk, he sat down and prayed and decided he would just essentially preach that night as he always did. The simple, life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ with that passionate sincerity that we've seen in Paul and we've seen in Billy Graham over his life. And he decided he's just going to let God do the rest by his spirit and work in the hearts of the people. And over the next three nights, hundreds of people came to faith, many of whom went on to become preachers and ministers that you know and are still in ministry today. One man was called David Watson, an evangelist, a church minister. I worked at his church. He wrote lots of many books, and uh, I've heard him speak a number of times. That is who I heard this story from. The point is this. 
However insufficient we feel for the task of proclaiming Christ, it just doesn't matter. If you feel out of your depth that it's too much to tell your friends of the wonderful, life-saving, heart-transforming spirit work of God, don't panic. Give it to God. Admit your weakness and trust in God's all-sufficient strength that can and will work in and through you as people receive the good news into their hearts and the Spirit works and transforms them into the likeness of Christ. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ministry of Paul and many who have followed in his footsteps who have dared to preach that simple good news that Jesus has come. He's lived a life that we could not live. He has died a death that we deserve and he has risen so that we may have life if we put our trust in him. We thank you for that wonderful new covenant that he has established in his blood. That if we trust in him, we can know all of those uh, wonderful promises, those blessings, the forgiveness of sin, of knowing you. Lord, I pray that uh, for someone here today, maybe for the first time, where they have held you at arm's length, may they know you truly. Please work by your spirit in their lives, I pray. Amen.